Today's scripture reading is from the book of Jonah, chapter 3 and 4, beginning at verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I had said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarsus at the beginning, for I knew you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, it is right for you to be angry. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. There is a wideness, O Lord, in your mercy, one that despite of all of our attempts to keep at bay, spills over and floods your creation with love. We pray through the words, these human words, your living word might be heard, and that we may receive your mercy. You may soften our hearts and open our eyes. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we are in week five of our sermon series on the book of Jonah, and here's a little bit of a recap for you. Way back at the beginning, God called Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh to get them to change their wicked ways. And instead, Jonah ran away in the other direction by boat. But then God sent a storm to get him back on track. So the sailors decided to throw Jonah overboard to maybe keep uh, God's anger at bay. And so they threw him overboard And then the whale, the great fish, came and swallowed him up. So much for that plan. He prayed from the belly of the whale, and the whale spat him up on the shore of Nineveh, the very place he was running away from in the first place. Nice try, Jonah. There's nowhere to run, and there's nowhere to hide. And last week, we heard that Jonah finally did what he was told. He preached from one side of the great city, to the other, and it worked. The Ninevites, from the king on down to the peasants and even the livestock, turned from their ways. They repented, and God repented too, deciding to spare them from their inevitable destruction. Despite his initial hesitation, his running and hiding, Jonah's mission was a resounding success. This was truly a miraculous turnaround. And with a record like this, he might be one of the most successful preachers in history. Every hit, a home run, boom, Nineveh. Turn back to God. And after a triumph like this, you might expect a little celebration, you know, a little champagne, a high five, or at least a you know, fist pump, but not Jonah. 
not Jonah. The sight of this complete turnaround of the cities, very displeasing to Jonah, it says. It's more than that. In fact, other translations say that it was that it's evil in Jonah's sight. Jonah's absolutely furious. And why is he furious, you may ask, considering his success? He's furious because God let these people off easy. So look, Lord, Jonah says, look, Lord, this is why I said no to you in the first place. This is why I ran in the exact opposite direction to Tarshish when you called, because I knew you were like this. I knew you were gracious. I knew you were merciful. I knew you were slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I knew that if I came here and preached and told them to repent, they would. And that you would just forgive them. I knew you'd let them off easy in spite of everything they'd done. And you did. Might as well just kill me now. Because I'd rather be dead than let these people get off scot-free. I'd rather die than let this wicked city survive. (laughs) Jonah's mad because it all worked out. He never said this the first time God called, or at least we didn't get to hear that part in the story. But Jonah says this is why he didn't want to do it in the first place, because he knew that God, that old softy, would just give in and hold off on giving these people their just desserts. Now this, Jonah sounds a little bit harsh to those of us who hear this text through polite, you know, liberal Western ears. I mean, what an awful thing to wanna see a whole city wiped out, a whole society punished, destroyed, especially considering the fact that they did what God asked and they repented. They returned from their, or they turned from their evil ways. Sounds pretty brutal. Remember though, that Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, that brutal, terrible empire that terribly brutalized Jonah's people. Remember how we said in a couple sermons that God sending Jonah to Nineveh is like sending a Jew to Berlin circa 1940 Nazi Germany? I've said it before, but this bears repeating. These guys are awful. They're the worst of the worst. And Jonah's people are their direct victims. His country, his family members, rape, murder, physical and psychological torture, disappearances, family separation, public shaming, desecration of holy places. These people have done the worst things any human beings ever done. The kinds of things you can never actually make up for, no matter how much you do or how much you say. These guys are bad. I don't think that we can really get Jonah's fury unless we understand this. So no wonder Jonah's angry. These people are finally gonna have a day of reckoning, finally gonna meet the hand of divine 
justice. They're finally going to pay for what they've done. And at the last minute, God changes her mind. If anybody's got bad karma, it's Nineveh. But all it takes is a little repentance. If anybody's deserving of punishment, it's these guys, but nothing. No jail time. They got off without a slap on the wrist, even just scot-free. So no wonder Jonah would rather die. If you've ever been truly wounded by another human being, if someone you're close to who's been truly victimized, then you probably, you probably get it because it's a mockery of the very idea of justice. It flies in the face of the universe having any kind of coherent moral meaning. I guess you could say from this vantage point at least, Jonah's rage is at least understandable, maybe even justified. And yet, and yet, with all of this in mind, God doesn't seem to think so, or at least God doesn't seem to think his anger is helpful. God responds to Jonah with a question. Is it right for you to be angry, God asks. Other translations say something like, is it good for you to be angry? Is it good for you to be angry. Like I said, Jonah's got every reason in the world to be upset by God's lenience. And yet God asks this question, one that throws Jonah's anger itself into question. Is it right? Is it good for you to be angry? And it's actually a familiar question for the biblical reader. The great scholar Jacques Ellul points out that the question that God asks Jonah is the same question asked by God much earlier in the Bible, way at the beginning. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel, Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve, the first people offer their sacrifices up to God. Cain's a farmer, so offers up some fruit. Abel's a shepherd, so he offers up a young, fat lamb. For whatever reason, we're not quite exactly sure. We don't really know, but God prefers Abel's meat to Cain's veggies, which drives Cain insane, so insane to the point that he murders his own brother. He becomes humanity's first murderer, in fact. But before Cain goes and does it, God asks Cain that same question. Why are you angry? Is it good? Is it right for you to be angry? Now, on the surface, Jonah and Cain don't have much in common. Cain's mad that God prefers his brother's sacrifice, and Jonah's justifiably mad that God doesn't hold the wicked to account. So why does God ask him the same question as the first murderer? What they do have in common, 
is that the unmerited favor of God drives them both crazy. One's anger is sourced in jealousy, the other's in righteous indignation. But it's undeserved grace that kindles in both of them a murderous rage. Jonah would rather crawl back into the big fish's belly and give himself over to death. He'd rather be in hell than save these people from hell. And while Jonah's anger is understandable, justified, and completely reasonable, his zealous desire for vengeance places him alongside the first murderer. It's at this point in the story that it's become clear that God's not just saving wicked Nineveh, God's saving righteous Jonah too. God's saving Jonah from himself. You see, as a modern culture, we've turned our sympathies towards the victim, and rightly so. So often victims are silenced and shamed as a way to protect victimizers and a way for the strong to continue trampling the weak without consequence on a personal level, on a societal level, take, take your pick. And this is most certainly a positive development. After all, Christians worship one who was victimized on the cross. You could, you could say that we know what it's like to dismiss a victim firsthand. We haven't, however come to terms with what being victimized can do to us, how it distorts and misshapes who we are. Like Jonah, we can become so consumed by anger and hatred that we can become driven by the same demonic power that hurt us. Maybe you've heard the saying that hating someone is like drinking poison and hoping that the other person dies. We can drink so deeply at the source of our own humiliation so that we end up destroying ourselves. We can become what we hate. And given the right circumstances too, we would inflict the same carnage on our enemies. We become prisoners caught in that same hamster wheel of sin and retribution that's trapped human life since the first murder. We line ourselves up alongside Cain in that great march of history. God's question, though, suggests that there is a different way for us and for all of humanity. It gestures us towards good news by pointing us away from the resentment of Cain and pointing us towards the reconciliation of Christ. The good news is, of course, that there is a way out of this prison, a way off a spoke in the never-ending cycle of sin and retribution. And this way 
has already been made for us by the God we meet in Jesus Christ. Jesus, who in his death on the cross has borne for us the consequences of all sin. The one who makes forgiveness possible, even our worst enemies. The one who not only taught his followers to love their enemies, but loved them to the end, forgiving even those who murdered him as they nailed him to a tree. The one who reveals to us the depth of a divine love that knows no bounds. The one who has made sin for the sake of sinners. The one who became a victim for both the victim and the victimizer alike. The good news is that the way out has already been made. It's made for both the Jonas and the Ninevehs of this world. It's, made for, it's been made for the Cain in each of us by Jesus Christ. And this way is traveled by the receiving and the giving of forgiveness. We're caught in a trap. We can't walk out. Grace is the only way. Forgiveness is the only way. So, whether you identify most with the wicked Ninevites or you see yourself more as a Jonah, of course, we're, both, we're all a mix of both to varying degrees. Either way, may you remember that you have been given a way out by the grace of God. And may you, by that same grace, take it. May you forgive as you've been forgiven. And may you experience the joy and freedom known to the children of God. Amen. Will you join me in singing Voices United 271, There's a Wideness in God's Mercy. <laughs>